0: Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. Today, we are joined by Catherine Angel, a writer out of London, England, and author of Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again. We discuss consent, sexual violence, heterosexuality, and emergent desire so welcome back to fucking cancelled uh today we are joined by writer catherine angel hi catherine thanks for coming on the podcast thank you um, for listeners who are not familiar with your work, do you just want to give like a basic introduction to who you are and your writing? Sure. So I
1: guess I describe myself as a writer of literary nonfiction primarily. Um, I've written three books of uh, nonfiction broadly around sexuality, feminism, gender, psychoanalysis that kind of area and i also teach at university in london and i'm training in psycho psychoanalysis
0: amazing well i'm really honored to have you on the podcast um so today the interview is going to focus on your book uh, tomorrow sex will be good again um when i was first introduced to your work like i was writing about Um, what I call the contractual model of consent, this like model of consent that is uh, defined as like verbal, enthusiastic, ongoing. Um, And as I was writing about this, your name kept coming up. People were recommending that I check out your book. So I did, and it definitely um, added to my thinking on this topic. So this model of consent where, you know, like yes means yes, and no means no, and you're supposed to be checking in verbally and communicating verbally all throughout the process. How does this way of thinking about consent impact or shape the way that we understand sexual violence?
1: So I think one of the things I was trying to think about in the book is the way that some of the solutions we try to articulate for problems of sexual violence and you know the kind of sexual intimidation that is so much part of the culture sometimes those solutions end up kind of reproducing the problems they are trying to solve Uh inadvertently Um, and so you know i guess i try to be clear in the book that i i think broadly speaking the you know the the development of thought around consent in the last few decades has been a really important thing even if i think it has lots of flaws Associated with it, but one of the really worrying things to me is the way that some of the language around consent ends up placing the onus yet again on women, usually, you know, if we're thinking about relationships and sexual relationships between men and women, sort of for the moment, um ends up placing the onus on women to sort of embody a certain type of personhood that ensures that they will not be um subject to sexual violence so you know i started feeling that that some of the language around consent in its emphasis on kind of self knowledge and um you know clarity and clarity of 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 one's own relationship to one's own desire but also clarity of communication just ended up sounding to me like a kind of fantasy of this ideal self-knowing subject mm. who can then kind of move in a world that isn't really kind of stacked against them in terms of power dynamics and, you know, the possibility of speaking at all or what happens when you do clearly enunciate your desire, you know, that can sometimes be precisely the thing that that goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so So I started to feel very alert to the way that that very well meaning language around you know women kind of taking autonomy and, and 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 knowing themselves could could really end up playing into dynamics whereby you know yet again um sexuality becomes a question of kind of risk management and if you don't manage the risk responsibly then whose fault is it oh it's yours <laughs> uh-huh.
0: yeah i think this is such an important contribution and I think this like uh, model of consent is like, yeah, it's well-meaning. The intent is to um, have less sexual violence, but I agree it's a lot more complicated in practice than this model uh, makes it seem. And then Mm -hmm. that kind of obscures like what, like, why is it that even when we have this model, things still seem to be going wrong so often. And so I think your Mm -hmm. book does a really good job of diving into that. So next I wanted to ask you about desire. Um, And I wanted to uh, ask two questions about a specific quote from the book. So you write, desire is uncertain and unfolding, and this is unsettling. It is unsettling because it opens up the possibility of women not knowing themselves fully and of men capitalizing on that lack of certainty by coercing or bullying them. Should we then deny this aspect of desire as a consequence? No we must insist on a sexual desire we must not insist on a sexual desire that is fixed and known in advance in order to be safe that would be to hold sexuality hostage to violence so i really love this quote and i would like to just unpack it a little bit for listeners so first of all what do you mean by desire being uncertain and unfolding can you say more about that
1: sure i guess i mean that you know again in this kind of um in a, in a lot of the cultural discourse around um, consent, you know, especially and you know, I wrote this, I suppose, in the wake of Me Too and and you know, noticing, you know, that on the one hand, of course, this was really an important moment for people to rearticulate certain um, questions of sexual ethics, um, but the thing that you know disturbed me um, was this sort of this thing that seemed to be so obvious to so many people writing and talking about this, and that really didn't seem obvious to me, which is that um, you can kind of just look inside yourself and find your desire. And then it's a question of sort of, you know, expressing that desire. And, you know, of course, that tons of people, you know, um, and, and sort of consent educators and sex educators will acknowledge this, of course, that That there are risks in articulating desire, Mm -hmm. you know, and that that, um, you know that once once you're out there in the world, kind of negotiating your desire with the desire of the other, especially in a very misogynistic culture, that's not necessarily a straightforward thing. But in a way, it seemed to me like the step before that was almost something that was quite difficult for us to look at, which is the possibility that maybe we don't know exactly what it is that we want, and that one of the risky things and in fact one of the erotic things and one mm. of the exciting things about sex is that you don't know what you're going to do you don't know what you're going to want to do you don't know what will emerge in you not mm-hmm. just in general in your sexuality you know because I, I also think that it's not it's not the case that i mean you know i can't speak for anyone else but i certainly know that it's not the case that i um can really adequately describe myself sexually, you know i'm I'm this, I'm that, I like this, I like that uh-huh. it it changes you know from uh-huh. person to person, from context to context, from day to day you know that there, there there is a kind of um opacity to our sexuality that I think is very discomforting for a lot of really important attempts to address sexual um violence and sexual kind of intimidation because you know as as i say in that quote that you just gave it is it is disturbing potentially to 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 see ourselves as going into um sexual situations that are are inevitably fraught with um anxiety and fear and the potential for violence because you know, sadly, the fact is we can't define violence out of the world. It, the The potential for violence is always there. But we, I think we hold on, understandably, for a sense of safety, to the idea that if we know something about ourselves, then we're safer. Mm. And, you know, that may sometimes be true, but it's no guarantee, first of all, that that the person you're with won't decide to commit violence against you anyway. There's there's absolutely no guarantee of that. And also, I think it's a sort of red herring. I think it um it forecloses it forecloses not just a kind of erotic potential. You know, that's been an argument that's often been made that, you know, this kind of more mm. transactional model it takes the sexiness out of life. And, you know, I maybe that's partly true, but in a way, that's not what concerns me so much. It's more that I think if we're going to try and articulate a sexual ethics that is that is worthy of of who we are, then I don't think we can start from a premise which is simply false, namely the premise that um, that we know what we want and and that if only we could know that and then be very clear about it and teach you know teach people to respect other people's desires, then we would be okay.
0: Yeah, because we will always
1: be surprised by sexuality.
0: I think this is so important. And I think it's something that people know intuitively. And yet at the same time is like hard for people to grasp and understand when we're like talking about it explicitly, Um, Mm. because like just like we are social animals, right? And like being social animals, we when we're in a social engagement with another person, like what is coming out of that social engagement is not something that is like mapped and planned ahead as if we were like a computer program you know when when you have a conversation with someone for example it's not like you sit down beforehand and say like these are the these are the topics that I want to cover in this conversation and we'll map it out first and then we'll do it like part of the interaction is that you don't know what's going to happen in the conversation because Mm -hmm. something someone's going to say is going to spark something in you that you weren't expecting and then you're going to be talking about something you you had no idea what you were going to be talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So with sexuality, I think it's similar to that where it's not like the desire just exists inside of us ahead of time. The desire emerges through mm-hmm. the relationship as it's unfolding. And that's why yeah. like, you know, you might you might be someone who likes a certain act or you generally know that in sex you like this type of act, but you might not like it with a particular partner. Or like you said, mm-hmm. you might not like it on a particular day. And so, um, yeah, you're going to be surprised. And the other thing that it makes Mm. me think of is um, Esther Perel's work on the erotic. She talks about the erotic, like that mystery is so important to the erotic, the not knowing and the crossing, like the divide between yourself and Mm. the other and how the other remains always at least somewhat unknown to you. And that's part of what's sexy. So Mm. um, I also like in this quote, how you talk about, you say very firmly like no we should not do this and we must insist um on a desire that is not fixed or known in advance um and that to do so would be to hold sexuality hostage to violence um so can you say a little bit more about the second part about holding sexuality hostage to violence like why is that important that we don't do that
1: i suppose that in that sentence i guess i'm expressing something um Which I which I feel does maybe run through the book, which is that um, on the one hand, it's completely understandable to me, and I and I share this feeling too, that that given the extent of sexual violence and given, you know, lots lots of people are walking through the world with deep intimate knowledge of that sexual violence and you know the familiarity of it in various forms. That given that, it's it makes perfect sense to me that we that a, that a response is to try to work around it, you know, to mm-hmm. accommodate to it and to devise strategies that will hopefully make us safe in the wake of it. And 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 that makes complete sense to me. You know, we all do it, whether whether kind of conceptually in our theories or also, you know, just in how we uh, the route we take. Uh, going home at night you know mm-hmm. it's it's such a deep part of life um but it also feels really important to me to keep trying to insist you know perhaps perhaps um what's what's the word i'm looking for kind of uh you know perhaps we will always fail in this but it seems to me nonetheless important to in, to insist that we try to imagine a world without sexual violence and mm-hmm. to refuse to accommodate to it. And that includes our kind of theories and our thinking. And so I think what I'm trying to convey with with that sentence is that um I don't want I don't want my theories of sexual desire, my theories of consent, my theories of uh of sexuality or of feminism to be ones that um adjust themselves to the fact of violence Uh i want to start from the position that um that a world without sexual violence might be possible and also that this world of sexual violence is a world as you know as you said that operates between us as social beings and therefore we have to really take seriously who we are as social and sexual beings and part of taking ourselves seriously in that way is um, is to really think about what sexuality is like, and and the fact is, you know, when you really think about what sexuality is like, it's it's extremely messy. It's not that there is no um, kind of comforting, cozy um, place that we can fall back on when we think about sexuality, and and that I think is what is disturbing, understandably disturbing to people, you know, including myself. That, you know, when you really examine (laughs) what sexual life is like for people, Mm -hmm. I think the prospects are very complicated because sexuality is, uh, it's about so many things. You know, it's not just about satisfaction. It's not just about sexual release or pleasure. Pleasure is just one part of it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's also about pain. It's about suffering. It's about the fear of death. It's about uh, how you work through everything you've experienced up till now, it's about, you know, the way you have sex tells you everything. Well, maybe not everything, but tells you a great (laughs) deal about the whole of your past and your family's past. You know, I really, Mm. I really think that's true. And so we're grappling, you know, with a force that is unsteady, it's unpredictable, it's frightening. It is also quite often aggressive. And I think we just have to start from that place. You know, I, I, I feel like I don't want my account of sexuality to be one that, that tries to cover up that uncomfortable fact because mm. I am legitimately afraid of the pervasiveness of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the world is a pretty terrible place. But that telling the truth is the only hope we have in hell of getting anywhere with mm-hmm. anything. But that truth is is uncomfortable.
0: Totally. So just to make this concrete a little bit for our listeners, one of the things that comes to mind um, you know, in your discussion of this this straightforward known desire um are these sexual desire lists. So like in In the sex education that I have experienced over my time in, like, feminist and queer culture and world, like, there's this um, idea that you should make, like, a a yes, no, maybe list, right? So you, you write out your sexual desires, like... Ahead of time, so you're not in a sexual context right now, but you just write out like these are the types of acts that are a yes for me. These are the type of types of acts that are a no for me, and these are the types of acts that are a maybe for me. And like, I've come across this tool like many many times um, in all sorts of like sex ed contexts. And, you know, it was, it's always been presented in a very straightforward way. Like there's no, there's nothing confusing about this. It's very straightforward. And this is how you will, you'll share this list with a potential partner or you'll, you'll do these lists like with your, your partner and you will discover what each other likes. And then you'll use that as like a map going forward in your, um, in the sex that you have together. So first of all, like I always found these lists like decidedly (laughs) unerotic, Like right, right away. Like I wasn't turned on by this because I was like, what? Like I'm imagining like disembodied sex outside of context, mm-hmm. outside of relationship, just floating with no, no, uh, no attachment to it. Right. Um, and secondly, this way of relating to consent has actually led to more unwanted sex for me rather than less. And I think that this is something that is, you know, what your book is actually like pulling out is that not only do we lose the erotic, you know, a lot of what is sexy by, by relating to desire this way, but it actually doesn't necessarily protect us from violence and in some Mm -hmm. ways could increase the unwanted sex. So like, just, just to like, you know, unpack this and what this looks like concretely is that like, I've made these lists, shared it with a partner. And so now I've said kind of ahead of time that I'm consenting to this act. And Mm -hmm. now in the actual moment of sex, for some reason, I don't want to do this act. Like I'm not into Mm -hmm. it, even though I thought I would be in this context with this person. I'm not, um, I'm not actually turned on by it, but now it's on me to have to, in the moment, Mm -hmm. like express that and say no to something that I had originally said yes to, which is like confusing and difficult. And I think built into this model is sort of the assumption that of course you can always change it, but they don't really tell you how to change it. Um, Mm or how to bring up something that's now quite awkward because you had already, the person felt confident doing it because they thought it was okay. And now you're saying it's not. Um, so yeah, I'm just wondering if you've come across these lists as a tool of, of sex ed and, and what your thoughts are on them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's so interesting because, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, okay, if, if the list is, is just a list of yes and no, then that I think is appalling because i think what's really important is the maybe right it's yeah. it's the maybe that um you know that you don't know you don't know in advance what <laughs> what you're going to be okay with yeah um but but yeah you know it, i was also thinking but what about the things you've said yes to ahead of time that you then don't want to do um and so it doesn't surprise me that 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 can be um one of the experiences that comes out of that, you know, again, a very well-meaning yeah. um, approach, one that also acknowledges that, you know, some things are are more fuzzy, you know, we don't know exactly, I may be open to this, I may not be. Um, so again, you know, a, a useful, important attempt to kind of address the problem, but one that I think yet again actually puts something out of view that's very important which is the question of um h- how do you kind of negotiate during sex right you know sex is um you know it's a very heightened experience you sort of th- there are things that we lose in sex one of which is you know <laughs> the capacity to express ourselves as well mm-hmm. as we would like to maybe or um you know it's a strange it's a strange thing where you know ideally there's a kind of presence to sex which is really one of the things that's kind of amazing about it um but it but it is also a kind of losing of ourselves and an absenting of ourselves and so you know how do we in that setting particularly then given that there are always kind of power dynamics at play and you know imbalances of power and fear and anxiety on both sides. How do you then, in the moment, say to somebody, "Actually, I'm not, I'm not all right with that, or I don't, I don't want to do this. Can we do this instead?" Um, and so, you know, one of the answers that that comes to us is like, "Let's make it clear beforehand, right. you know, because right. wouldn't yeah. that be great?" Yeah. It's it's so appealing as an idea, um, but you know, I guess I also, I mean, it's just very tricky. I honestly don't think i really have an answer to this because i do think one of the things that is exciting about sex and one of the reasons we go to sex you know one of the one of the reasons it's a place that can be so moving for us is precisely that it's precisely that you just don't know you don't know what you don't know how you're going to behave, you know. And it's such a kind of cliche that, you know, in sex you say and do all kinds of things, and then afterwards you're a bit like, oh <laughs> Jesus. Come on. Don't tell anyone about that. You know, it's 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 frightening, yeah. it's genuinely frightening because we are encountering the parts of ourselves that mm. that don't see the light of day usually. Um and so th- to me, there is something kind of a bit poignant about the attempt to kind of um understand it before it before it happens you know and to sort of set the parameters however you know on the other hand of course we feel we have to do that because we live in a culture where you know women in particular are um you know treated as if um if they don't articulate very clearly what they will and won't do then they're fair game you know, mm-hmm. you didn't say no, you didn't fight back hard enough. Oh, you never said, oh, I just assumed, like, oh, but yeah. you'd said that you were up for that. You know, the coercion, the kind of the subtle and not so subtle forms of bullying are so pervasive, um, that that I that I'm not surprised that we resort yeah. to ways to manage that. But in a way, part of my response tends to be that. My sexuality just doesn't operate like that. It doesn't operate according to these clear parameters that I can articulate and stick to in advance. But why do you, as this other person, want to use that against me? What Mm -hmm. makes you want to use that fact, potentially, as a way to bully me? Why do you get pleasure out of eroding my, perhaps admittedly, Unclear boundaries,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know. So, so I don't want to have to be this crazily clear boundary person who's like, I'll do this and this and this, and I won't do that. And okay, let's go. I don't want to be that because I want to be able to experience the the pleasure of that unpredictability. But so I think, and I think everyone's sexual pleasure is related to that in some way. You know, I think most people, what they find exciting and amazing and 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 you know, existentially profound, spiritually profound about sex mm-hmm. is precisely that you're going into something and you and you don't know what it's going to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: but I don't want to have to change that about myself because I'm afraid that the other person's going to exploit it. But the yeah. fact is, people do exploit it because you know heterosexual men
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know sadly are um educated. In that being their role, their role is precisely to kind of um, push and to and to sort of undermine while acquiring something from a woman, and that that is so disturbing. But I refuse to then a- adopt some vision of sexuality that I'm only adopting because I because I know that that's something I'm legitimately afraid of.
0: Yeah, I think a really important point here, you know, and it's something that women who have sex with men really grapple with and struggle with, is whether or not your partner is entering into this dynamic in good faith with a desire to know your experience, Mm -hmm. with a desire to genuinely try to understand, like, what is feeling good for you and what you want and don't want. And I think with straight men, there are a lot of men who, like you were saying, who actively don't care and who are entering into a dynamic in which they are viewing sexuality as something that they are taking, something that they are getting from a woman. And they're not actually very like attuned to her pleasure or her boundaries. They're not really mm-hmm. trying, but there are a lot of other men who actually do want to try, um, and may or may not have a certain level of skill with it. Like how good they are, how good they are at actually being able to tell um, or Mm -hmm. to communicate um, is going to vary. But I do think that these are like two very distinct categories, like whether um, a man is entering in, in good faith with a sincere desire to Mm -hmm. um, find out how she feels and what she wants Mm -hmm. versus men who genuinely don't care and are not trying. And the hard thing is, is like, how do you tell the difference? Right. And I think that Mm -hmm. that that's something that a lot of women, especially early on in a dynamic um, are really struggling with because you don't know. Um, and so I think that that is a place of skill building, um, Mm. in discernment and it's not like any of these things. It's not a hundred percent. Like you could think that you have one who genuinely wants to know and then find out, unfortunately that you were wrong about that. So it's not like it a hundred percent protects you, but. When I'm talking to women, I mean, I'm bisexual. I do have sex with men too, but like, especially talking to straight women, I think that there's like a lack of awareness about this distinction and and actually like trying to tell if your partner, this person you're going to have sex with. And there are tells that happen in, in a non-sexual context, you know, like, does he listen to you when you talk? Does he interrupt you all the time? Like, is he curious about you in your not in non-sexual encounters, you know? So anyway, I don't know mm. if you have any thoughts about that.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think,
0: I mean, I think that's a
1: good way to frame it in terms of a sort of, you know, good faith, interest in the other person. But I guess, I guess I also wonder if, um, you know, like if if, if, if we're going to take seriously the complexity of sexuality in, in men as well, in mm-hmm. straight men. I also wonder if there's an element of um, that those two people can coexist within one person, mm-hmm. And, and that I think, you know, sexuality for men can be a very complicated and painful place um, where there might be conflicts between those things, you know, on the one hand, wanting to be that person for a woman and also knowing that the culture kind of also, yeah. you know, values it in some way, like, you know, we're we're all against sexual harassment and sexual right. violence and, you know if you're going to be a good man or like you know have some kind of uh currency that that you need you need to understand that you know the old ways are not are not good enough anymore mm-hmm. but the culture also really rewards a kind of bullying of women sure. um and i and i think that is genuinely difficult for men um and i and, and you know I, I i sort of try to i do feel a lot of worry and like compassion for the quandary that men find themselves in. I mean, it's probably not a very fashionable thing to say, you know, because we're not supposed <laughs> to feel any kind of tenderness or um or care for 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 the difficulties of of you know people who might also be sexually violent. But mm-hmm. but I do think if we're interested in thinking about how sexual violence is brought about, I I, I think we have to take seriously the extremely conflicting um and bewildering messages that that men get about their relationships to women and you know that I think go back very far in their lives, you know, their very deeply rooted ambivalences towards towards women. Um so I, you know, I don't know, I can hear myself sounding pretty pessimistic in a way about about all this, but um but I but I do think taking seriously that difficulty for men is also part of the solution. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Um, So in my writing about this, one of the things that I suggest um, as like an alternative to this like contractual model or this like ongoing verbal um, communication is the idea of attunement and like Attunement I, is like a concept that like comes out of like psychology and like attachment theory, but like, basically it's the idea that like communication is not just verbal It includes attunement it includes verbal communication, but it's bigger than that. And you're paying attention to all sorts of different like signals that a person is giving from their like tone of voice, the sounds that they're making their eye contact or lack of eye contact, their body language, how they're turning towards you or away from you and also how that is changing. Um, over the course of an interaction, right? And I think we all have varying levels of degrees of skill with attunement in our day-to-day lives. Um, I also think it's something we can increase our skill level in. And our literacy in attunement with an individual person increases the the more that we know them. Because if you don't really know someone that well, you might not be able to read their body language as well as someone um, that you don't um, know as well. But basically, you know, I think like if we're going to use verbal consent, we also need to have attunement on top of it or like with it alongside Mm. of it. Right. Because there's a difference between asking someone like, Hey, do you want me to do this? And the person is like making direct eye contact is like smiling at you and is like pulling you close to them and being like, yes, Mm. like I'm into this versus a person who kind of says like, okay. And is like, kind of like, frozen up and like looking away or turning their body away or like not Damn. really responding or saying something. Um and so for partners who genuinely do want to know, because I don't think that this is helpful in a situation where someone doesn't really care yeah. and they are just trying to get something. Mm. But like if they genuinely do want to know, um, I think attunement is an important like contribution to this. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you have come across attunement or thought with that mm-hmm. as a frame in any of this.
1: Yeah I mean I think that's really um it's useful I think it's useful that that perspective on it um because I I do think one of the flaws of 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 how consent stuff gets kind of filtered through the culture is that it is excessively verbal like mm-hmm. our understanding of sexual dynamics and sexual kind of negotiations is um it's too often on on things that we're meant to say um about ourselves or asking the other person um and as you say that's just you know it's only one part of the picture and also also you can say yes i'm into this and every other signal is yes, i'm not into this exactly <laughs> you know we've probably all been in that situation <laughs> in some some form or other that you know something comes out of your mouth um because you you're afraid of saying no or because you think you ought to say yes or or even because you might think that you're up for something yeah and you might not realize but your own body might be actually trying to say something else yeah um so i think i think that it's absolutely one of the things that that you know we need to be kind of becoming more fluent in and encouraging also encouraging you know children to kind of learn about one another is is these these sorts of things i think where it gets tricky is that um you know it is this question about the relationship between what we say and what our bodies do because mm-hmm. as you know in the book i i write about this in relation to kind of this the the research the scientific research on arousal and mm-hmm. you know desire in men and women and and a lot of that research is i mean frankly pretty spurious but um You know, one of the things, one of the ways in which um, research into the kind of physiological aspects Mm -hmm. of um, arousal gets used is by incels and pickup artists and, you know, basically like rape apologists, you know, all over YouTube um, who, you know, have these theories about the fact that, you know, a woman might say one thing but really her body is like screaming out for something else mm-hmm. and they in you know they, they invoke um you know this idea of kind of physiological arousal you know wetness and lubrication as you know like a sign that that a woman is really up for something so you know so so you can kind of increase the likelihood of her sexual arousal um and she might be saying oh no i don't want to do that because of the sexual double standard and she feels ashamed and can't say i really really want to do this um but you know you you just keep kind of gently persisting and it'll all work out fine you know which is a, a, an excuse for bullying a woman into sex mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I think it's very complicated how we kind of see this relationship between what we say and and how our bodies um react because you know on the one hand the body the body does not give consent you know mm-hmm. you can you you can be physiologically up for it and ready for it you know because you're a mammal who's evolved in this way to you know has organs that will protect themselves um but you may not want sex um and similarly that you know the tricky thing again is that i think so many people have the experience of of thinking like i i did want that and i did say yes but actually i don't think i really did want that and that's where a lot of, you know, really fraught stuff happens where you consent to something and then you feel like shit afterwards mm-hmm. and you feel like, actually, there was something about that that was wrong. It felt degrading. It felt coercive. It felt, I, I you know, I was saying yes for the wrong reasons. Mm. and And that's where I think, you know, it gets genuinely difficult between people because somebody... Can legitimately think they got consent. Yes, but the woman might—it might still have been the worst night of her life, you know. And this doesn't just apply to women, of course. I'm sort of talking just yeah. broadly here. But. So I think, you know, again, the, the 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 real problem is that our own desire is—it's um, not a given. It's yeah. not—it's not a given. You know, you can consent to experiences that you co- that you come to regret. And it's not always clear that it was assault or coercion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's that it's that our own relationship to our sexuality and our relationship to others, you know how we relate to others, um what feels possible to us in a moment to say or to do, is really not um it's not straightforward. And that is what muddies the waters and leads to such a kind of contested arena of you know recrimination. Um, Totally.
0: yeah it's it's complicated and there's a lot of layers to it i think again like i do go back to this like good faith versus not good faith thing because i think any of these guys these incels or um you know pickup artist types like right from their very beginning right from their their initial standpoint they're in bad faith because they are viewing sex as something that they take as something that they feel entitled to as something that they're trying to get as opposed to You know, something that might unfold from a dynamic of curiosity and like Mm -hmm. um, presence with another person, another human being, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that there's always this inherent risk, even when when both people are trying their best to communicate in good faith. There's always the risk that something does not get communicated properly, that the knowledge wasn't there for, for the person who was saying yes and even communicating yes in body language um, and, and afterwards something still feels wrong, like, I think that there's no way to get rid of that risk entirely, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is kind of just something we have to accept about sex. But I do think mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways to reduce it through, like, good faith attempts. Yeah at trying to know the other person's experience, which is a really different intent than like Mm -hmm. just trying to have sex or trying to, like if you're really attuned to someone and you're very curious about what they want and how that might overlap with what you want, that could look a lot of ways that don't even fall under what we would normally consider sex. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I guess that kind of brings me to my next question um, or the next kind of theme I wanted to talk about, which has to do with heterosexuality. So your book very specifically is about heterosexuality. It's about it's about dynamics within heteronormativity between men and women. Um, and a lot of my work is like, I, t- I have this interesting frame because I'm bisexual. And so part of my life is in that world. And then part of my life is in queer world. Um, and one of the things that I, I joke about with straight people is uh, like in queer world, Because in in straight world, the idea that like men initiate and women either allow or don't allow is like a built-in part of like gender roles, right? And like, that is like part of what your book is talking about is that this idea of asking and receiving consent is like kind of implicitly imagining that it's the man who is asking and initiating and is the woman who is, who has the burden of knowledge about her desire and who has to either say no or yes, allow or don't allow, Mm -hmm. um, And that kind of goes without saying in like the heterosexual imaginary of sex is that men are the actors, women are the passive recipients. Mm -hmm. And in queer world, we use the words top and bottom to refer to these types of roles because gender is not obviously going to be the thing that's going to do it because the people have the same gender. So it's, you know, there's, I'm not saying this is like a perfect model either. Like it has its own issues. And sometimes this, like the heteronormative baggage should be carried over into the roles of tops and bottoms, but at least there's a more intentionality and awareness that you're taking on this role. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've written an article and often joked that like in straight world, like men and women don't even know that they're tops and bottoms and they're just kind of unconsciously acting out these roles, um, through heteronormativity. So, How do you Mm -hmm. think that 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 frame of like men always initiating and women always either allowing or not allowing, how does that like play out in in this model of consent about asking and and receiving verbal consent? Mm. Yeah, that's really
1: interesting. I mean, I think you're, yeah, you're right. It's definitely built into so many conversations around sex between men and women, for sure. Um, and I think that, you know, it's interesting what happened also with consent, the way, um, I, you know, I think people started to kind of wise up to that in the early days of, uh, you know, the development of, of um affirmative consent discussions that you know that women don't just want to be the ones who are gatekeeping and saying uh-huh. like oh yes i will or no i won't that you know women might also autonomously want to go out and and ask for sex or seek yeah. it or you know have a more active role um or, or you know or be seen as being able to even um and again, that you know, that makes a that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but you know, it's, it's like this. That is the paradox, the kind of really painful paradox of heterosexuality, I suppose, which is that um, you know, on the one hand, women are encouraged to, you know, not not to be like uh, repressed and you know ashamed and and sort of quiescent and passive, you know, like. You know, strong, independent, self-possessed mm-hmm. women of today—you know—are assertive and clear and confident about their sexuality. And okay, yeah, great, fair enough. But you know, we know, we know for a fact that that can be very uh, destabilizing for men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can be disturbing. It can be exactly the thing that they kind of they fantasize about, but also find kind of repellent mm-hmm. and 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 you know, despicable um and and the grounds, therefore, to express their contempt for you, you know, whether sexually or otherwise. Um, but we also know that that's the thing that will then get used against us in totally. trials. so i I sort of, you know, i really I really think that the the bind that women, you know, particularly heterosexual women, bind themselves in, um, but you know, not just because ev- everyone lives in a in this, you know, kind of misogynistic, heteronormative culture, and I think everyone is the victim of it, including heterosexual men. Um, But the bind is that, uh, you know, we're being exhorted to take up contradictory positions Mm. all the time. And you can can guarantee that, you know, at some point, you'll be punished for one of those positions, you know, whether it's being kind of punished for being too uh too quiescent and not vocal enough because then you know how was he supposed to know that you weren't up for it or you can be punished for being too vocal and and then you know well what were you thinking you know what did you expect so um i think i feel i may have strayed from your question slightly but but i I think it's a really good point went to yeah
0: yeah i think it's a really good point because the idea of You know, like, unfortunately, it's 2024, and this is still a thing where the idea of a woman being a slut is like, you know, already um, this idea that men can get away with doing things to her. And the more that you embody that, the more at risk you are um, of those types of justifications of sexual violence. Well, of course, you would have been down for it. It seems like you're down for it because you're giving off this energy. And that, that specific misogynist combination of mm. like both really attraction to women who, who embody their sexuality and also like contempt and anger towards that is a is a scary yeah. combination.
1: Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's a combination that I think it goes, you know, it goes very deep. It has very long historical and cultural roots, but it also has, um, you know, deep kind of psychological roots. And, you know, Freud wrote really beautifully about this. Um in a couple of essays, where he he talks about um, the kind of the, the compulsion on the part of men to kind of fall for women who are unattainable in some way, and the and the, a sort of you know a repetition of a, of an attraction to you know women who are married or you know to, to sex workers, prostitutes, as he would push it, um, you know, and 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 some of the way he frames that, of course, you know, it's very it's very couched in his kind of late nineteenth century view but but what's really interesting about what he writes about that is he talks about the um the there's some amazing sentence to the effect that when there's a series when you see a series of something it's a clue that there is one there is one figure that those that series stands in for and you know of course for him it's the mother it's the kind of the desire to um on the part of the man to uh, overcome the, you know, the the brutally disappointing realisation that he is not the one for the mother, that the mother has other interests, namely the father or other men or other siblings. Um, And he talks about how for men there can be this, uh, this kind of inextricable link between desire and the desire for revenge. And I think about that all the time because I think about, you know, one one view you can take on a misogynistic culture is that, is that view, is the view that there is something unbearable for, you know, for all of us, we're all children. Um, uh-huh. It's unbearable that we are not the only one for, for our mother or, you know, our our, our primary caregiver uh-huh. um, and that, and that, somehow you know for men that can get translated into um sex becoming a way to somehow expel some of that that contempt that hatred that rage and when i see you know the way men talk about women when you see i don't know when you see so many people in the culture being vicious sadistic misogynists it feels to me very true that there is some deep deep disappointment that is being kind of worked out through sexual relationships to women and that is you know that's a dark thought because that you know if you universalize that then there's no hope (laughs) but which I don't I don't want to do but I do think it's a really useful way of thinking about some you know some deep hurt that also gets um worked through 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 a repetitive mm-hmm. kind of need to to do something sadistic to women who are the stand-ins for for the mother.
0: Yeah. That leads me really well to my next question. Um but before I before I move on to that, I just wanted to say a couple other things about the gender thing, which um talking to bisexual women has been a really interesting and kind of illuminating like angle on all of this for me because um the way that bisexual women are is like i mean in lesbian world there's kind of this like stereotype about, about bisexual women like never fully committing to their queer side like never fully going over and like valuing their relationships with women in the same way that they do with men and part of that is because heteronormativity is like it's a pre-made script you know it's it's right there you can just do it it's very simple and since bisexual women don't totally divest from that it's it's a lot easier in a certain way to be with men um because There's not a lot you have to figure out. The map is already there. Um, But a lot of bisexual women, like when they're with other women, they cannot rely on this gendered thing where the dude is going to be the one to make the move, right? That is no longer Mm -hmm. a thing. They have to take on the role of being initiatory in some way um, Mm -hmm. if they are going to have sex with other women, or they're just going to wait around permanently for her To do all of that as well right so there can be Mm -hmm. this this standoff where two women especially bisexual women because lesbians they tend to have figured this out they kind of have to right but bisexual women can be stuck in this waiting for the other one to make a move and part of what freezes bisexual women is this terror that she's not going to be honest about what she doesn't want because bisexual women have been on the other side with men where they have, mm-hmm. due to their own fear, not communicated that they didn't want something and allowed something to happen. And they know that other bisexual women are going to be stuck in that non-communicative thing. And so you're trusting her to tell you if she doesn't want it, but mm. she might not. So this is like mm. one of the main issues that uh, that prevents bisexual women from like having sex with women successfully. Um, so I just thought that was like an interesting Yeah. Like, <laughs> Taking so your book into a queer context, I think, is really interesting.
1: Mm. That that is really really interesting. Yeah, that that there's a kind of transition to a, you know, a role, a kind of gendered role that that can be quite difficult.
0: Yeah. Um, so I just wanted yeah. to say that, but um, mm. I want to I want to read a quote of, from the. It really goes into what you were just saying about the the misogyny and the hostility. And I think it kind of opens that up a little bit. It's kind of a long quote, but I'm obsessed with this quote, so I'm just going to read it for the audience. Um, The hostile tropes often found in pornography, take this bitch, you fucking love it, bitch, express, to be sure, an idea that women shouldn't desire sex, that if she does love it, one can feel contempt for her. But they also work to turn the tables, to deny and displace vulnerability the vulnerability men experience in feeling desire for a woman. It's a response that wants to punish the feeling of desire for opening up a chasm in the facade of mastery and that relocates in the woman the troublesome feeling of men's own desire. I don't want, you want. Heterosexual men get to work out here the aggression they feel towards their own weakness, towards their own vulnerability to desire. And this may be why desire, a troubling symbol for the loss of control, gets refigured so insistently as the triumph over a woman, as denigration of her, as humiliation of her. These are the ideals of mastery and power with which men punish women, but also themselves. So this is like, there's so much in this quote, but I think that it's it's one of my mm. favorites from this book, um, that part of what men might be so angry about when they're expressing this misogyny is actually at their own like weakness, their own vulnerability. Um mm. to, can you say something about mm. that?
1: Yeah. It's interesting hearing you read that back I mean, to I hadn't I hadn't thought about that bit for a while. <laughs> but um yeah, I guess I, I I still I still believe it. I still agree with myself. Um I do think that there is something really interesting going on that i guess you know it's classic sort of projection it's it's projecting outward something that is intolerable in oneself um namely a feeling of need you know mm. a feeling of 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 just just how desperately um men can want and need sex you know to to feel okay to feel uh to feel like they're men to feel like they have value and currency in the culture to feel that they're performing and succeeding and striding forwards um and you know acquiring various things um, and you know that that need can be very destructive it can be very destructive for their sexual partners but it also seems to me sort of tyrannical you know a, a, a tyrannical thing to experience in in a lot of ways and Perhaps tyrannical only if it if it can't be quite seen for what it is. Because I think that you know, so much so much of sort of, you know, traditional heterosexual masculinity is about kind of keeping at bay the possibility of feeling one's own um longing. Mm. and and vulnerability in that longing you know because if we if we long for something and we want something we we're acknowledging that there's a lack that we're trying to address um and so the longing you know can be very strong but uh it's very difficult to sort of be honest about that that feeling that feeling of of, of something that needs to be fulfilled or found or um and I think that a lot of violence probably comes from the the need to sort of keep that out of sight and to kind of you know satisfy the longing as efficiently as possible but but to not not speak or not not show um, that kind of painful feeling of lack that mm. That is entwined with it. And so I've always, you know, I've always thought that, you know, on the one hand, yeah, you know, one one analysis of, of that kind of like, you fucking love it, you slag sort of thing uh-huh. is like, it's, it's just about, you know, the denigration of women. But I think the denigration of women is so bound up with the fear of um, the vulnerability that might be involved in masculinity as well. Because there's oh, something right. kind of, you know, life or death about it, and that's it. I, I do think that that must be genuinely um painful, you know, to, to want something so much, and also for that want to be something that cannot be acknowledged as as something that might need tenderness or that or that might lead to intense anxiety.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I often think about like. You know, as I was just saying about the bisexual thing, you know, being put in the role through my through my experience with women, being put in the role of being expected to be the one who takes on the responsibility for being the one who acts, who initiates, who does. I found it stressful. You know, I found mm-hmm. it stressful. I found it overwhelming. Um, I found mm-hmm. it very like it's a lot of pressure. You know, and um, it really gave me a different insight into men's experience because I think that that to always through, through heteronormativity and gender roles to always be expected to be the one who acts, who does, who initiates, who is the dominant one. It it really like all of our humanity is more complex than that. And therefore all of our desire is more complex than that. And like some of the conversations I've had with men who are like unpacking this stuff, um, men have told me that in their relationships with women in, in sex, they often don't get touched like all over mm-hmm. their bodies, like in a sensual mm-hmm. way. The, the sexuality is often focused on, like, the cock, the penis, like, and on the idea that, like, men are, you know, supposed to be very, like, d- dominant, aggressive, active, taking, and they don't often get touched in this, mm-hmm. like, more full-bodied, like, sensual way that, that women, I think, we get more of. Um, and I can imagine that that is, like, painful and that mm-hmm. there could be longing there for you know a recognition of their sexuality that is like you know coded as more feminine um and to mm. to to never really get that but to want it and then to ha- to have women fully like holding that in the culture i can see also how that might play out in a sense of anger mm. towards women and contempt for the part of themselves that is that has that sexuality that is coded as more feminine
1: yeah yeah and then because you know, that, that aspect of sexuality, the um, you know, the the part of what we want when we want sex is to be seen and to be loved and to be to be held, to be acknowledged, you know, in in all our sort of messiness. Um, if that is at play, you know, in men too, which I think it is that can also be a source of shame and you know again a thing that yeah because it's not part of the kind of traditional um you know masculine sort of script is yet another source of shame that has to be converted into something that is you know more aggressive or more kind of alienated from that more sort of general sexual erotic mm. relationship to themselves and i mean i often think that you know that that there must be there must be a lot of things that men are not getting from the sex that they're having you know mm-hmm. it's it, it's very true and it's a cliche to say that women having sex with men often don't get you know what they should be getting and you know all the statistics about women mm-hmm. are far more likely to reach you know high rates of orgasm with female partners than <laughs> with male partners mm-hmm. you know we we all know that um well i don't know if we all know that but you know that's that's established but i also think there is a lot that men are not getting from Sex, and uh-huh. there there is a kind of narrowing um that 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 probably again, you know opens up that that chasm, that sense of of loss and and lack that then has to be kind of repeated it, you know it has to then be something has to be acquired in order to plug that that gap, you know, uh-huh. and then lo and behold it, it doesn't you know, and that and that's true of sex for everyone, right that we will invest so much in um you know what sex is going to resolve for us you know if only we had the right sexual partner if only we had the right romantic partner that that horrible feeling of lack and emptiness and anxiety would go away Mm -hmm. you know if only um and it it doesn't you know that there's something more at stake that that sex can't resolve for us um but i i do sometimes think that um and it, it can be really really painful for men not least because that isn't also how we talk about male sexuality you know we're very focused on the aggression the the mm-hmm. coercion the violence and and of course we have to be focused on that because it's yeah. everywhere but but what are men trying to get from sex what what do they totally. want from it what what kind of visions for their erotic life might they have and not 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 have available to them
0: yeah and like when you were talking about you know like the little boy and the boy's relationship to the mother like you know when 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 boys are very young when they're when they're babies like they get to be touched and held in this more full-bodied way where they're seen as you know a baby like a full person not as a man you know and part of the socialization of men is yeah this like this hardening from from vulnerability and from softness and from like the fullness of of, of humanity that includes um an openness to being hurt and like an openness to to longing mm. and to yeah i think there's something there that that is like a big loss and when we talk about i mean it's really true women don't really have orgasms with their male partners very often or as often as they should you know like that's a big problem but also when we're talking about the success of sex like if sex is successful the focus on orgasm um as the thing that mm. that determines whether or not sex was successful is also such a narrow way of thinking about sex. And so it's like, you know, men might be getting lots of orgasms, but what are they also not getting in terms of full body touch, sensuality, um, being able to be soft, being able to receive these types of things, which are also human desires. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I was thinking about that a bit when you were talking about the, you know, the yes, no, maybe lists, because I was sort of thinking, you know, sometimes sometimes you can have sex that's like it's great sex you know it's like whoa fireworks and orgasms and but but it sort of doesn't it doesn't stay with you or it doesn't it it, there's something it doesn't touch but also you know maybe your most erotic experience could be like just lying next to somebody and like and listening to one another's breathing you know or just looking at each other or or or, or just holding one you know it's so many things. Sex is yep. so many things, and we Absolutely. and we can't predict exactly what it is that we need and want and what we're going to get. But but surely widening our sense of what counts as erotic yes. for men, for men and women, for you know, for yes. everyone, I think it's surely going to touch that that part of us that um, that longs that is that is mm. just the part of you that longs. Absolutely. and the, and that wants to have that longing met you know not necessarily mm. satisfied but but encountered mm.
0: yes so i want to ask you about the the this was the part of your book that really blew my mind i actually was very like you you gave me something that i had not yet encountered in any of my reading so i really just want to draw this out so basically mm-hmm. in recent years there has been this framework about women having a context-based sexuality, right? We've seen this coming out more and more. Women have context-based sexuality. Um, And when I first encountered this, I found it to be a welcome relief because I had felt a lot of the sex-positive feminism that I had been encountering prior to this um, intervention about context was basically, you know, expecting me to have a sexuality, quote, like men's in the sense that I was supposed to just be down immediately like ready to have sex um you know into like pornography or like into like visual representations of sex and just like really able to access my sexuality immediately um and i did not relate to that like trying to have a sexuality like that did not work for me um I was not turned on by like disembodied images of sex and I really needed context so when I started to read about women having a context-based sexuality I was like oh my God like yes this is this is really real um and it did start to lead me to this place that was like uncomfortably bioessentialist you know because I was like well I don't know how to explain this but it seems to be true that women, um, have slower arousal. Um, it takes us longer to get turned on and we need a lot of context. Whereas men, um, tend to be way more ready to go, have a way quicker time accessing their arousal and they don't need a lot of context. And then one of the things that really like kind of was a nail in the coffin of this way of thinking for me was my relationships to trans men in my life who I watched them go through this transition in their sexuality where they went from having a more context-based sexuality to having a less context-based sexuality and having a more like traditionally male sexuality of um, spontaneous arousal. And so I was like, is it the testosterone? Like, is that what this is? You know? And so mm-hmm. I started to kind of believe that it was the testosterone, which I was like a bit weirded out by because I was like, this is very bioessentialist of me, but like, is that what it is? But your your book offers such an important intervention into this conversation, which I have never heard anybody else say. So thank you. Um, but basically you argue that men also have a context-based sexuality, (laughs) but that what's going on is that the context that they are entering into is one that is already conducive to arousal. And so this happens mm-hmm. in like two ways. I uh, to just to paraphrase your work back to you. Like one is is like there's there's a part of context that has to do with sort of like putting on the brakes of sexuality. Like are there things that are slowing down arousal? And one of those would obviously be fear. Like if you have fear of sexual assault, if you have fear of horrible things happening, it's going to be harder for you to get turned on and relaxed because you don't feel safe. And so in a, in a culture where women are constantly navigating the threat of sexual violence, this obviously acts as a break on our ability to access our arousal. And then secondly, you know, we live in a culture that is constantly catering to men's fantasies, men's desires. Like the entire industry of like pornography and like sex work and like even just like mainstream media's representations of sexuality are very often oriented towards men and towards what men want. Um and so yeah, I just wanted to give you mm. the opportunity to talk a little bit about this because I've honestly never heard anybody else say this. And I think it's one mm. of the most important contributions that this book makes.
1: Mm, my God. Thank you. Yeah, I guess I, I sort of have had a similar thing, you know. I've I've really grappled with that model, um, which, you know, seem, seems to make a lot of sense. And 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 I think, you know, studies suggest that it resonates for a lot of women, this idea that you know, it resonates with their experience, which is that desire doesn't just happen at the drop of a hat. It doesn't just emerge really spontaneously. It sometimes can, but not not as much. Um, And that, you know, it's about context. um, And then, and also that, you know, being in the right state and then being able to experience arousal can lead to sexual desire, which leads to more arousal. So that's a kind of virtuous kind of feedback loop. You know that definitely resonated with me to some extent. I mean, not not for all phases of my life, but definitely for some of them. Um, and I too really worried about it because on the one hand, it seemed you know so much of the research about it seemed very confident that this was quite a stark difference between men and women um in a way that just you know, set my teeth slightly on edge. Um, but but also that it sort of seemed to um kind of reify you know actually quite a traditional picture of women again as you know the ones who need to be sort of talked into sex yes. like that your that your desire can emerge you know you're you're a woman you don't have lust you right. don't just wake up and think I need to have some sex. You're you're a woman. You need silk sheets and flowers, and you know, right. which which also sort of put my teeth on edge. So you know, <laughs> I'm being a bit facetious about it, but you you know, it it does sort of it it maps onto certain models of the difference between men and women sexually and and socially that I find very very problematic. Um. So, I, so I've i had this, this, a similar kind of trajectory with it, but it really sort of began to feel to me that there was something really important in this notion of context, you know, because the fact is people live in very different social worlds. And, you know, it, and it's interesting that you raise um, the question of, of trans men, because of course, you know, for trans people, they're encountering a social reality that is vastly different from mine. I mean, you know, similar in some ways and and vastly different in others. And, and I, you know, I think there's lots of interesting work to be done on the relationship between sexual experience and that kind of social experience of transitioning and then, you know, inhabiting a world where you might be vulnerable to very particular kinds of risks and dangers to do with, um, you know, with, with transitioning. Um, or just, you know, living in a sort of non-normative way. So it's it's such a minefield, I think, this, this question about what kinds of sexual desire people experience. Um, but it feels really clear to me that, you know, if you live in a world where, on the one hand, people are kind of shouting at you to be more sexually confident, and at the same time punishing you if yeah. you... If you, you know, take on a role that can be seen as too masculine sexually or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that that isn't kind of traditional enough in terms of kind of modest, you know, female coyness, Mm -hmm. then no wonder your sexual desire is going to have a more complicated trajectory to travel. Um, Because I think, you know, and. I mean, as you as you can probably tell, like, you know, this book is I did a ton of research for this book. But of course, a lot of the kind of motor for the book was my my own grappling with this stuff and this feeling that, you know, I'm very interested in sex. I have often had a very high sex drive. I've often been, you know, felt really compelled by sex and also, you know, found it very painful and problematic, and problematic. And finding it very puzzling. Um and and knowing that, you know, in some ways my sexual desire could could really be seen on that kind of more masculine model of like just just up for it and and it and it can happen very quickly. And then at other moments, it can feel like something that is inaccessible to me and that that I can be experiencing my life in such a way that I can't even remember what it's like to feel desire and to be able to inhabit that more open and and, and frightening and vulnerable place. And I think, you know, some of that is to do with the very, very um, bewildering context that we live in as, as women.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually threw your book across the room when you said this in a positive (laughs) way. But I was like, (laughs) really, 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 like, I was like, that's the piece. That's the missing piece in everything I've been reading about this. This is the piece. And I think it's such an important contribution. I think like, you know, there's lots of good stuff in that book. But that alone is like a reason why, you know, Mm -hmm. for the listeners read this book, because You know, I think it's all well and good. You know, the stuff that we're talking about about you know, context as an important part of arousal for a lot of women, and you know, I think that's a necessary contribution. But it does risk this this kind of just like reiterating these like sexist stereotypes. You know, and it also it 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 leaves unquestioned this idea that like men just have a biological drive towards sex, and men don't also have this contextual stuff going on for them and they do you know so in a way it robs robs both sides of of our like full humanity and our full relationship to desire that is more complex and yeah
1: yeah yeah because the context you know for male heterosexual desire it's still context it's just that it's denat it's naturalized it's made to seem as just as a state a natural state that men are in that makes sex you know more accessible for them um and and that you know of course you know biology is plays a part and you know testosterone plays a part but i think you know the research on testosterone is not straightforward in terms mm-hmm. of its relationship to sex drive at all um but i guess oh there was something else i was going to say um oh it's gone maybe it'll come back
0: yeah but i think it's uh you know you talk about men having sex for reasons you know and like the idea that you know sex is always just this like physical release and that's that's why men want to have sex is just to get off for pleasure um and for women sex is this complicated like multi-layered full of feelings full of context full of like relational stuff is also just reiterating these gender roles in this horrible way that I'm also like, you know, women also enjoy getting off. Women also enjoy pleasure and release. Men also enjoy sensuality. Men also enjoy like relational context. And, and like, we're, we're denying this on on both sides. It it robs us both. So yeah, such a incredible, yeah.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Because that, yeah, that was the other thing that that the language you know that some of these researchers use is about women's interest in sex and their motivation for sex Mm. and that you know we apparently you know we have sex for reasons other than sex it's to do with stability and closeness and you know and and it's usually explained in kind of evolutionary terms in terms of you know finding a partner who's going to stick around and help us raise our young sort of thing (laughs) Um, but yeah I guess one of the things I wanted to say was men also have interests in sex and motivations for sex, not least of which is the tremendous kind of social um, affirmation
0: mm-hmm.
1: of their masculinity that comes through their performance of sexuality. So, you know, it, it's about also trying to to denaturalize male heterosexuality instead of falling back into these positions that I think are also politically quite dangerous, which is mm-hmm. to say like, oh, well, you know, male sexuality is just innately aggressive you know, and we, ha- we have to find a way to put the brakes on men's innate kind of aggression towards us. And, you know, it's difficult because we as women, you know, essentially we want, uh, you know, a nice loving husband who will raise our children, you know, it, that can't be the solution. It, no. it, it can't be. We can't naturalize this this quandary for ourselves. We have to try to find ways out of it. But the the other thing I wanted to mention was that you know when you were describing this part of the book that resonated so much with you i was thinking about the the opening of the book and this the scene with girl x and the video mm-hmm. of her with the porn actor james dean and i think that's partly why it spoke to me so much that video because her ambivalence it's so clear you know she she wants to have sex with this, like, world-famous porn actor. She's, like, you know, she's she's found a way to make this happen. She arrives at his apartment. Like, she has got some real sexual desire and curiosity mm-hmm. and risk-taking. It's a very risky thing to do. It, it's such a, such a risk for her life, I think, mm-hmm. to do that. Um, so she wants it. You know, she wants that thrill. She wants that excitement. And she also... That can't get her head around what she's doing and she is afraid and anxious and she kind of wants to and then she doesn't and 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 it felt you know now when i look back at that book it's so clear to me when i write about her i'm sort, of sort of writing about myself you know mm. clearly i really identified mm-hmm. with that ambivalence and 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 i know i'm not alone in that because so many women feel sexually alive and curious and and eager and also very afraid yes and that's such a difficult position to inhabit
0: totally yeah and i think there's a lot there and i also think you know like thinking about the quote um about men like disavowing their own vulnerability and putting it onto women um and acting that out through sex through through dominance and aggression and um I also think about men's ambivalence towards sex and mm. how like the expectation that men must always have sex in this role and you know just like as I was saying about being like queer and having the, like kind of gone onto the other side and 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 taken on that role myself like I can just see how it's it's so limiting you know and but this is like it's almost like taboo for men to like admit that they don't necessarily want to always have sex Mm -hmm. in that way. And I think Mm -hmm. in our like liberation, as we've started to be like, for example, like the concept of, you know, um, basically sex that is most likely to make women reach orgasm is for some reason called foreplay. It's like absurd, you know? And like, if I have sex with like a woman, that's called sex. But if I have that exact same sex with a man, it's called foreplay. It's like absolutely (laughs) absurd, you know, absolutely absurd. (laughs) Um, yeah. but you know, and so we've started through feminism to have some language about how women need to be liberated from this like very narrow, you know, understanding of like vaginal penetration is the real sex and and everything like that. Mm. But I also think men need to be liberated from that. Like, that's not the mm. only kind of sex that men want to be having. That's not the only kind of touch that men want to be having. But I think that that's very like repressed, you know? Um, yeah. and the ambivalence that men might feel about wanting to perform that role. I don't think we're there yet to really like, um, to give men the space to admit that, because it's immediately mm-hmm. seen as emasculating. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that that contribution of really understanding that context and and multiple reasons for wanting or not wanting sex is very real for both men and for women. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, thank you so much for this interview. Um. I love the book. I really. I encourage everybody to go out and 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 read it. You're like I, I see you as a philosopher like you're you write in a way that is very like you're taking things that people sort of just take for granted and aren't really asking questions about and then you're opening it up on like a very deep level to like really look at the pieces of our day to day experiences that you know what is really going on there. So I think it's really worth mm-hmm. the read. Um do you want to just let the listeners know a little bit about what you're working on now, um, your next projects, and also where they can find out more um, about your work?
1: Sure. So I'm working on, um, on a book called Poor Freud, and it's about psychoanalysis and women, I guess, broadly speaking. I don't really know what it's going to be like. <laughs> I never quite know what, what I'm doing until it's done um but it's sort of um you know i've i've read freud for a long time and and i i just think he is so extraordinary and he's obviously occupied such a complicated place in the Mm -hmm. cultural conversations and especially in relation to feminism and really it's going to be a kind of um an exploration of my my experience reading him, my experience kind of thinking psychoanalytically, um, and feeling that you know there is so much of use within Freud if we're trying to think about women um, and feminism. But of course, there is so much, so much terrible stuff that was that's been done in his name, not and not just to women. Um, but um, I'm kind of I'm I'm really. Interested in trying to kind of stay with that um, that really fraught potential in Freud and in psychoanalysis, and and and, and, and you know I'm training in psychoanalysis, and, and and I'm thinking a lot about the practice of it and the techniques of psychoanalysis and how you know the the space, the kind of therapeutic space, is one that is also always open to risk and abuse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and to and to kind of uh, exploitation of power relations, and um, and I'm trying to really kind of grapple with that and and think about what that means for the practice of therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's go- it's going to be a bit more first person as well. It's going to have a bit more of me in it, my experiences mm-hmm. with therapy, my experiences, um, you know, with f- kind of physical symptoms and my relationship to them, and. Um, but yeah, I'm really sort of just feeling my way, and uh, it's due in a year's time, so mm-hmm. it should be out some point in 2025 or early 2026, maybe. But uh, we'll see. Nice. <laughs>
0: yeah, and,
1: and I'm have... not super.
0: Sorry, I'm not
1: on. like I'm not super online these days. I'm not on Twitter or X or whatever anymore. <laughs> um, I I am on Instagram um and i have a substack where i write about um about this book about about trying to think about freud and a, a bit just about my um my life <laughs> i guess mm. and that's called something nice is coming
0: okay yes i follow you on substack so i will um put the links to the substack and your instagram in the show notes for listeners but yeah thank you so thank much this you. has been a great conversation it was a pleasure to talk to you
1: Likewise, I've really enjoyed it.